Lord, for salvation. Thank you for Jesus Christ who made salvation possible. Thank you for your word which tells us about salvation and tells us about your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the time that we have to spend in your word, that you are even the creator of time. Thank you, Lord, for this country in which we live now under a Christian president. We do lift him up before you, and we just want to undergird him with prayer, Lord. But thank you that we still have the privilege to assemble together in this country. We have the freedom that we might open your word and study it and grow closer to you through that study. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, which gave us the faith that we have to place in you, because we know that without faith it is impossible to please you. Teach us, Lord, how to stretch our faith. Thank you for the trials and the tribulations and the tests that you've put into our lives because we know that it's through these that we do have our faith stretched and we do lean upon your shoulder and learn more from you through the valleys than we do even on the mountaintops. Thank you for this lesson that we have this morning on Abraham and his backsliding journey from Canaan to Egypt because even as he backslid, there are many things that we can learn from from this uh, event in his life. When he did fail in his faith, he did doubt you, but we pray that we might learn from his mistake and be better for it. Now go before me, Lord, hide me behind the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. This is the 35th lesson in our um, Genesis study, and we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, starting at verse 10, going through chapter 13, verse 4. As we consider this lesson, we're going to continue, as we did in our previous two lessons, to learn from the life of Abraham about the journey of faith with God, our walk of faith with the Lord. Except in this situation, we are going to learn, hopefully, from his mistakes. There are four main divisions in our outline for this study. First of all, in Genesis 12, verse 10, we're going to talk about the famine which God allowed in the land of Canaan as a test of faith for Abraham. And then in verses 11 to 13, we're going to discuss the falsehood which Abraham perpetrated with his wife, Sarah. And that contrived falsehood led him, Abraham, to a failure which, had it not been for the intervention of God, would have been utterly disastrous, not only for Abraham, but for the nation of Israel and for the coming of the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, and for you and I as well. Well, finally, in Genesis 13, verses 1 to 4, we're going to find that Abraham, after he had this failure, he did return to Bethel, you know, where he had built that last altar, and therefore we will entitle the last section Fellowship, because he does return to fellowship with God. So with that little bit of an introduction, let's look at Genesis 12, verse 10, and the famine. It says, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. The Lord God purposely allows trials to occur in a believer's life in order to verify belief, in order to purify belief, in order to get rid of some of the dross, you know, some of the negatives in the believer's life, the uh, worldly things, and also to stretch the believer's faith. You see, God knows the level of our faith because God knows everything. He knows where we are in our walk of faith. But we, even though we might think we know our level, we don't. And oftentimes it is when we are in a time of testing or an examination in God's school of faith that we really find out where our level is, right? Would you agree? Sometimes we think maybe we're lower than we are. God brings us a test. We find out we actually score higher than we thought we would do. Sometimes it's the other way around. We don't score quite so high as we thought maybe we would. Well, Abraham did not fare too well at all in this particular examination. In fact, as far as his advancement in God's school of faith was concerned, we could say that he didn't even pass. You know, as we've been talking about my daughter wanting to pass her research and statistics class, he didn't even pass. We could actually say in our terminology that he had to be put back a grade. And this is what many Christians refer to as 
backsliding. The famine which came to the land of Canaan definitely resulted in a backslidden time in Abraham's life because he actually slid right down into Egypt. And uh, although there are times in the scripture when God does command or permit one of his people to go into the land of Egypt, such as Jacob, you know, when there was a famine in Canaan, Jacob was told to go into Egypt. Joseph had already been brought there ahead of him. So God had orchestrated everything so that Joseph and his family, I mean, Jacob and his family could go into Egypt. He was commanded to go. And who else was commanded to go into Egypt? Can anybody think? Right. Joseph and Mary and Jesus were commanded to go to, into Egypt. But generally, God's people are to stay away from Egypt. Spiritually speaking, going down to Egypt in the Bible is a reference to trusting in the world. Egypt is a picture in the Bible of the world and trusting in human resources instead of in God. So Egypt is a biblical symbol of the world system against God. It is a symbol of spiritual bondage, while Israel or Canaan is a picture of the blessed inheritance of the believer. You know, it says in Isaiah 31, 1, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. So God presented Abraham with what we could call the famine test. Perhaps one principle which God was trying to teach Abraham was that tests and trials often come on the heels of triumphs. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you find out that this is true. Often it's after the victory that the test or the trial or the tribulation will come. So after the spiritual victories on the mountaintops of Bethel, the believer should be very alert and ready for those famines in the valley. God will often send trials purposely, just as he did with the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh. God will often send trials in order to keep his servants humble. Because, you know, if you have had a mountaintop experience, a lot of times the, uh, the temptation would be to get a puffed-up head. You know, things are going great. I must really be strong in my faith and doing really well here. So God will purposely, sometimes the trial will come from God, as the thorn in the flesh did with Paul. However, Satan can also be the source of a trial. He might orchestrate a temptation immediately after a believer's spiritual high because he knows that that is often when the Christian's guard is down and when his own attacks will be more effective. On other occasions, Satan may even very craftily use the very trial which God sent in order to, to humble us. Satan might take that trial and use it, as he seems to have done here in Abraham's life, in Genesis chapter 10, to cause the believer to doubt God, to doubt God and to doubt God's promises and plans. We are told that the famine which came into the land of Canaan was, what's the description? Grievous. It was a grievous famine. And that tells us that it was a severe one. And it was long. Long and severe. The food supply of Canaan began to dwindle. And remember that uh, Abraham was a stranger in this land, which made his situation even more grievous because he could hardly expect any help from the Canaanites who didn't know him and weren't, weren't very keen about having him there anyway with his worship of this God, this unknown God. At any rate, they were in exactly the same predicament, weren't they? They were also in the famine, so they weren't much help at all. So from the human perspective, it would look as though Abraham had very little choice but to go to Egypt, which was not suffering from a famine. In fact, Egypt at that time was flourishing. The fertile Nile River Valley was, uh, was very fertile and lush and was supporting a large population. It was abundant in food and in pasture, and both of those were things that Abraham would need, physical things. 
And Abraham was, of course, responsible not only for himself and his wife and for Lot, but for all his servants, the souls who had come with him from Haran and for his large flocks. They were all depending on him for their daily sustenance and nourishment. So his flesh dictated that a move to Egypt was wise. However, even though the circumstances appeared to justify Abraham's course of action, they didn't. Circumstances alone cannot be counted on to determine a path of action. They must always, always, circumstances must always be interpreted by what? (laughs) By the word of God. Abraham's action of going down to Egypt to avoid starvation demonstrated his lack of faith in who? In God and in God's promises. And a lack of faith does not please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11:6. The real reason that Abraham went down to Egypt was because he ceased using God's word as his guide. And instead, he turned to two other guides. You know what those guides were? The guide of circumstances and the guide of self preservation. God's word had brought Abraham all the way from Ur of the Chaldees um, up to Haran and then down where he needed to be in the land of Canaan and even all through the land of Canaan, right? So it had brought him a long way, God's word had. But now, for fear of having empty bellies, Abraham ceased walking by the supreme guide which is the word of the living God. The eight promises, remember those eight promises in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and then there was another one down in 7, verse 7. If you count those up, those are eight promises. Those promises should have precluded allowing Abraham and Sarah and those with them to perish. If Abraham had thought about the fact that God said, I will bless you, I will make your name great, you shall be a blessing, um... In thee, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he understood that that meant that through his seed would come the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman. If he had thought about those promises, obviously God was not going to allow him to perish, right? Nor Sarah, nor those with him. So he should have relied on God's word. This shows us, by the fact he went down to Egypt, this shows us that he was simply not trusting in God and his word. Even though some of our trials might be grievous, quite grievous, yet we must view them as great opportunities to do two things. First of all, to display God's glory, because his glory is most seen through our trials and the way that we handle them when we handle them properly and trust him. Also, we should view our trials as a great opportunity to increase our own faith. So to glorify God and to increase our own faith. The greater the trial, the greater the opportunity for those two things to happen. You know, it's all a matter of our attitude toward trials, isn't it? They say that 90% of life is attitude. 10% is what happens to you, and 90% is your attitude toward what happens. So when you have a trial, if you would keep in focus that, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to glorify God in the way that I handle this trial and for my faith to stretch, then it will be a lot easier for you to go through that trial. But please don't misunderstand by thinking that we are to be blind to our circumstances. We're not to be blind to the reality of whatever it is that we are going through. We are, of course, to see the circumstance. I mean, we're not supposed to walk around with our eyes shut and not face reality, put our head in the sand. We see the circumstance, but we should also see the whole big picture. You know, see God's working. See what God is up to. We should see the God of creation and redemption who stands in control above and beyond those circumstances. The problem with Peter when he sank into the water after he had just successfully walked across the surface of the water for at least a couple steps, his problem was not that he looked at his circumstances. 
His problem was that he looked only at his circumstances once he took his eyes off of Jesus. He was just focused on the water and the waves and the wind. He took his eyes off of Jesus. Abraham, who had already experienced the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ at least two or three times, I believe three occasions, he should have kept his focus on the Lord and on all that he had promised him. I mean, he could have seen the famine, yes, of course. He faces, you know, we should face reality. He saw the famine, but he should have also kept his focus on God. But what did he do? He took his eyes off the Lord, just as Peter had done, and he put them only on his circumstances. Instead of asking himself, what can I learn from this trial, Abraham rationalized with himself the question, how can I get out of this trial? So what did he do? He went down. He went down to Egypt. He would have to learn the hard way, that it is far safer to be in a famine in God's will than to be in Pharaoh's palace out of God's will. He would learn by way of God's chastisement that when circumstances are grievous, it is still better to remain where you are in the midst of those circumstances until God himself tells you to move. Isaiah 28, 6 says, He that believeth shall not make haste, which is wise counsel. You know, all of our decisions really should be uh, seen in light of that statement. We should never be hasty to make decisions. And that's why it's very critical to spend lots of time in prayer and make sure we know what God's will is. He that believeth shall not make haste. Faith in God will move a person in the direction of hope and peace, but doubt will move him in recklessness and restlessness and also fear. The will of God, you know you've heard this before, the will of God will never lead us where his grace cannot sustain us, right? Who had led Abraham into Canaan? God. The will of God will never leave us where his grace cannot sustain us. But Abraham failed the famine test, and in turning from the will of God, he faced a whole new set of problems, which would happen to us too. We would face a whole new set of problems if we don't don't trust God in our circumstances, in our trials. When When he or we run from one test in God's school of faith, You know, I don't like this famine test very much, God. I'm going to just avoid it. When we run from one, we are going to soon encounter another test because God does not allow any dropouts in his school. So if you try to run away from the first test, he's going to just give you another examination. It'll probably be even harder than the first one. So those who belong to God need to learn to trust him. And he will give them one test after another until they learn their lessons properly. So we're, you know, we're, don't think you're not in school. You're in school your whole life long. You're in God's school of faith. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth him. That's another good verse. Psalm 138, 8. As it says being, you know, in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will complete it will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is the same idea. The Lord will perfect, he will complete that which concerneth him. And if you belong to him, he's concerned about you. So we turn now to the next test. You know, he tried to avoid this first one. Let's look at the next test encountered by Abraham after he demonstrated his lack of faith in God by leaving the promised land and going down instead to Egypt. So we turn from the famine to the falsehood. And for this, this, let's look at verses 11 to 13. And it came to pass when he was come near to enter into Egypt that he said unto Sarai, his wife, behold now, I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Has your husband ever said that to you? (laughs) Behold now, I know that you are a fair woman to look upon. I said, what have you been eating? (laughs) 
verse 12. <clears throat> Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of thee. Sounds a little bit selfish there, doesn't it? Sarah, put yourself out on a limb. They'll take you alive, don't worry. <laughs> but you'll save me. <clears throat> Pretty bad here. No sooner had Abraham made a decision based on circumstances not rightly interpreted by the word of God to move into Egypt that he was faced with another decision. This time he failed to make a right decision because, again, he used those two wrong guides. He used self-preservation and circumstances as his guides instead of trusting in the Lord. Now, what were his circumstances this time? Well, most likely, as he entered into Egypt, he could not help but notice that the eyes of the Egyptian men were focused lustfully on beautiful Sarah. And I just have to say that this really is amazing, that Sarah, at the age of 65 years old, was still very desirable and very beautiful. And this just goes to show us that the effects of sin on the human body were not as advanced as they are today. I mean, wouldn't you say that's true? That she is so desirable. We'll see how desirable she is. Even later on in the book of Genesis, she's still desirable. It's amazing. I mean, that's wonderful. I just wish that sin hadn't done its harm so quickly for us. Well, some of you are 65, and you're very desirable, too, to your husbands, right? I better stop before I get <laughs> in trouble. <laughs> it's all in the eyes of the beholder, right? It really is, because it's amazing to me. I, I just I have to laugh at my husband because he, he doesn't want me going anywhere alone, and I just think it's so funny. A 51-year-old woman, oh, Catherine, be careful. <laughs> They're all going to be looking at Oh, my goodness. <laughs> But I think it's cute. That's precious. All right. Anyway, off of Sarah. The Egyptians were, do you remember who they were? They were the descendants of the son of Ham, who was named Mizraim. We saw him in Genesis 10, verse 6 and verse 13. And like the Canaanites, they were polytheistic. They believed in many gods, and they were also very immoral. Polygamy, meaning they had many wives, and sexual promiscuity were even really more common over there in Egypt than they had been, it had been in uh, Canaan. Because Abraham had gone to Egypt due to a backsliding condition regarding his walk of faith with God, it's not surprising now to read of his fear in these verses. When faith decreases, fear will increase. You know, just almost in direct proportion to how faith decreases, fear will increase. Abraham did not build what in Egypt? An altar, right? He did not build an altar in Egypt. He was not in fellowship with God. We don't find him in this whole passage until the end and over in verse uh, chapter 13. We don't find him at all calling upon the name of the Lord as he had done over in his altar at Bethel. So he had not only moved from Canaan to Egypt, but he had moved from confidence to fear. And his fear arose from the situation regarding Sarah's great beauty. He thought that it would not be wise to claim Sarah as his wife, for some of those covetous Egyptians might kill him in order to have her for themselves. So he was suddenly faced with a decision that he had not anticipated, which is often the case when we step out of the will of God and find ourselves in the midst of ungodly company. You know, when we go to the world for answers to our problems, we're going to find ourselves in the midst of the world, in the midst of ungodly company. And then we're going to be faced with further decisions, aren't we? Well, Abraham's fear led him to what? Scheming. When a believer sets his focus on his circumstances, 
and on his own self-preservation and takes his eyes off God, he will often stoop to his own scheming. And this is only going to lead him into further trouble. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 18 and 19, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool. That's exactly what Abraham's going to become in this story, a fool. That he may be wise. You know, God's saying, I'm going to let him become a fool so that he is going to become wise through this humiliating experience. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Abraham put his faith in his own wisdom here. And consequently, he not only got his wife into a terrible situation, but he came out, as I just said, the fool. He lost his testimony before everyone. The fear of man definitely brought him a snare, as it says in Proverbs 29, 25. Rather than trusting in all of God's promised I wills over there in Genesis uh, 12, verses 2 and 3 and verse 7, Remember, God said, I will bless thee, I will bless them that bless thee, etc., etc. I will um, make thy name great. Instead of trusting in God's I wills, Abraham was thinking to himself, they will. He was saying to Sarah regarding the Egyptians, in essence, this. He said, they will see you. And they will say that you are my wife. And they will want you. And they will kill me. (laughs) But if you say that you are my sister and not my wife, they will spare my life. Even though they'll take you. (laughs) They'll spare my life. So actually, Abraham probably rationalized with himself that this was not really such a bad idea. You know, because it was a half-truth, wasn't it? Sarah was his half-sister. Most likely, Abraham figured that both Sarah and he would be treated with respect, and his life would not be endangered if their marital relationship was not claimed. Any Egyptian, you see, wanting her for himself would then have to enter into negotiations with him, with Abraham, because he was her brother. And there was no one else. Her father wasn't there. So they would have to negotiate with Abraham, her brother. He might have thought that he could drag out those negotiations until the famine over in Canaan ended. And then he and Sarah could slip away unnoticed. Maybe that was his thinking. And yet, what had he done? He had told a lie because a half-truth is still a lie. It's still a whole lie. Sarah was not just his sister. She was, in fact, his wife. And so this was just outright deceitfulness on his part. To be rightly walking on the path of faith requires total honesty, not only in words, but also in the intention behind those words. You know, because we can, we can actually be honest with our words, but our intention might be deceitful. And even it works the flip side, too, if you can think that through. But the way of the world is the way of deception and lies. The way of Satan, he is the father of lies, right? And the father of deception. That's the way of the world. But the way of Christ is truth and honesty, because Christ himself is truth. Well, in this scheme we find that Abraham was not only backsliding in his faith and in his integrity, but he was definitely backsliding in his role as a husband. Would you not say so? (laughs) As a godly husband, he should have put his wife first and not himself. He should have never, really, he should have never brought Sarah into Egypt in the first place. He should not have taken her out from God's will for both of them. When a husband is out of the will of God, he can bring all kinds of trouble to his family. Abraham would have been far better off in Canaan in the midst of the most grievous of famines than in Egypt in the midst of plenty. Although he had reasoned 
to himself that going down to Egypt would be a wise move for their self-preservation, he was to discover that actually their preservation was in far greater uh, danger in Egypt than it had been in Canaan, right? It would have been far better for their bellies to be empty than for him to lose Sarah and for her to be defiled by one of those Egyptians. Well, Abraham's expectation that Sarah's beauty would bring them some kind of undue attention was very soon justified. Yeah, I got to thinking about this, and I don't really know the answer, but I thought, why didn't they just cover her face, you know, as they traveled? I guess maybe they didn't have a care of, uh, a covered wagon to put her in and hide her. She must have been riding on a camel or something. But why didn't they just hide her face? Well, maybe her eyes were so spectacular or whatever it was. Uh, she was absolutely an attention getter. So anyway, she did get, a, she did get noticed. But what Abraham had not counted on was that she came to the attention of Pharaoh through some of his princes. So the leader of Egypt himself and Pharaoh, being the absolute ruler of that nation, did not need to negotiate with anybody, right? I mean, what he wanted, he could take. So we turn now to a consideration of verses 14 to 20, in which we learn of the utter failure of Abraham's human reasoning, his human wisdom, and his scheming. And as we look at his failure, we're going to consider three subdivisions. First of all, we'll look at Abraham's loss, then Abraham's Lord, and then Abraham's lesson. We'll begin by looking at his loss in verses 14 to 16. And it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And he, Pharaoh, entreated Abram well for her sake. And he had sheep and oxen and he asses and men servants and maid servants and she asses and camels. Sarah's beauty must have really, really been quite unique. Because first of all, Abraham spoke of her beauty back there in verse 11. And then in verse 14, we notice that the Egyptians beheld the woman, that she was very fair. And in verse 15, it tells us that even Pharaoh's own princes saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. Now, that word commended in Hebrew is very interesting because this is the first time in the Bible that the Hebrew word hallel appears uh, in the scripture. Oops. I should have had that up there. Here we go. Hallel. And what, what word do we get from Hallel? Hallelujah. And I thought it was very interesting that this first use of the word Hallel was in regard to unsaved men praising. It actually means, Hallel means to praise, that unsaved men were praising a saved woman. And I just, I don't know what that means, but I thought that was very interesting. And that, so that is the first, the word commended is the word hallel. They were commending her before Pharaoh. Now, I like to think that maybe it wasn't only Pharaoh's, Sarah's physical beauty, which caused the princes to praise her. But it may have been also her inner adorning, you know, of a meek and quiet spirit, as it tells godly women to be in first peter chapter three she probably stood out in stark contrast to the egyptian women with all their made-up faces you know how they would draw their eyeliner way out here you've seen the pictures Um, they had heavy makeup and fancy jewelry and their fancy clothing and all their ungodly mannerisms and ways she probably stood out in stark contrast to that because we find that Sarah was a submissive wife. You know, she was a godly woman and probably dressed very plain, no makeup, and was probably just naturally beautiful and um, just had such a contrast to their women that perhaps that is also why she was so unique and why she was commended to Pharaoh himself. For Pharaoh to desire to take Sarah as a wife rather than just as a concubine also speaks of her rare appearance. 
furthermore, for Abraham, a stranger and a non-Egyptian, to have been lavished with such bountiful gifts in exchange for Sarah is yet a further testimony to her very special person and beauty. Now, Pharaoh, being the sovereign ruler over the nation of Egypt, as I said, did not need to bother with negotiations in order to get what he wanted. Obviously, from what Pharaoh would later say to Abraham down in verse 18, I haven't read that yet, but we find out that Abraham did maintain his story about Sarah just being his sister. And so, uh, because of that lie, he lost his greatest treasure. He lost his wife, Sarah. Even though Pharaoh, back to Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh probably did not have to compensate Abraham for the loss of the woman that he thought was his sister, he did. I mean, this speaks highly of Pharaoh. He could have just gone in there with his warriors, his soldiers, and taken her. Abraham was a nobody in that land. He was a a stranger. He was not an Egyptian. He could have just taken her, but he didn't do that. He very generously entreated Abraham well for Sarah's sake. So Abraham was given sheep and oxen and uh, he asses and she asses and camels and men servants and maid servants. I mean, that was that was a lot. That was a great gain. But his gain, even though it might have satisfied an ungodly pagan man who perhaps would have had many wives and wouldn't so much miss just one wife in exchange for all that bounty, yet this meant this gain meant absolutely nothing to Abraham as compensation for his dearly beloved Sarah. So riches gained at such a heavy loss heavy price, I mean, would have brought no comfort at all to the groaning mind and heart of Abraham. Can't you just see him in his tent after they've carried Sarah off? Just hating himself and thinking, what in the world have I done? And Sarah, I can imagine her frame of mind as she's being carried off to Pharaoh's palace to be prepared to become his wife. Just awful aggravation that Abraham put them through because of his scheming here. Furthermore, his sin would also have resulted in Pharaoh's adultery and, uh, and Sarah's humility. And also, his scheming would have caused Sarah to become an adulteress and also would have engaged her in polygamy because she would have had, or whatever the other word is for when you have two husbands. can't think of it right now. But. So he would have brought sin into both of them both of their lives, Pharaoh being the innocent party, not even knowing what was going on. So Abraham's way of handling matters apart from God had brought him nothing but trouble and the deepest of heartaches. His situation from the human perspective was seemingly impossible to fix also at this point in time. It had become so complicated that there was no human means to get out. You see, if he went now to, to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh the truth, after he had, first of all, lied about Sarah and then received all those many gifts from him in exchange for her, Pharaoh might have believed him, but he probably would have killed him, you know, for having lied to him, and he would have kept Sarah anyway. Or he may not have believed him and killed him anyway. So either way, you know, it looks like whatever Abraham would have done at this point in time, he would have angered Pharaoh and probably wound up dead. So he had no answer for his own self-inflicted dilemma. What Abraham should have remembered, I don't know if he did, if he did remember this, it's not recorded in the word of God for us, so we have to assume that he didn't, but what he should have remembered was God's earlier promises. He should have fallen on his face and admitted his sin and his utter foolishness and his failure to trust God, and he should have called upon God to somehow or another make things right. What had God promised? We've talked about it. God had promised to make him a great nation, to make his name great, to bless him, to uh, bless all the families of the earth through him, to bless those that blessed him, curse those that cursed him, etc., etc. But, and Abraham could have made the... 
those claims saying, God, you know, if you're going to be a God who keeps your word, you're going to have to solve this problem that I've created for us here. It's a big one. But if you're going to make my name great, oh, you got a big job in front of you. <laughs> and if you're going to bring the Messiah through me, the promised seed of the woman, you're going to have to rescue Sarah here because we really have a problem on our hands. But probably Abraham was just too ashamed of himself to even think that God would hold himself to keeping such marvelous promises after he had so utterly failed him, miserably failed him. So he's probably just too ashamed. You see, he didn't have 1 John 1, 9 because he didn't have a Bible. And so he didn't know that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He didn't know that. He would learn. So sadly, we do not read of Abraham calling upon the name of the Lord at all while he was in Egypt, either before Sarah was carried off or after, not at all in Egypt. He doesn't call on the name of the Lord till he gets back to Bethel over in chapter 13. Okay, that was Abraham's loss. Now, that was the bad news. Now let's look at the good news, which has to do with Abraham's Lord. And for this, we look at verse 17. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, plural, great plagues, because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. I think that's funny. God did that not because of Abraham. He did it for Sarah. <laughs> Poor Sarah. Well, it was God's purpose to bring his son into the world through Abraham. And who? Sarah. And he certainly could not do that if Sarah was to become the next wife of the Pharaoh of Egypt. So in order to get Sarah out of Pharaoh's palace before she was actually defiled, the Lord God intervened by sending great plagues upon Pharaoh and his house. Now, if it didn't say great plagues there, if the plagues had not been great, then Pharaoh probably would not have begun to investigate into the matter as to what was causing these plagues. But it was great plagues, and it, they got his attention. We don't know exactly what they were, but whatever these plagues were, they got his attention. Being a believer in many gods, which is called polytheistic, the Egyptian pharaoh would have naturally sought the counsel of his religious advisors as to who or what was displeasing one of the gods and bringing about this, these uh, plagues, this situation. Perhaps one of his servants or one of these the religious advisors or perhaps even one of the original princes who had at first seen Sarah, perhaps they came up with the solution that these plagues began at the same time that Sarah had been brought into the palace in preparation to become the Pharaoh's new wife. Maybe Sarah even went and told him. It doesn't say that, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe she did. Or maybe God himself revealed this truth to Pharaoh, as he did later on in Genesis over in chapter 20, with Abimelech, because, you know, you find out that Abraham does this little trick again. He lies about Sarah being his sister again, goes through the whole same mess. That time, God reveals the situation to Abimelech himself. I think, was it through a dream? And so maybe he did that here with Pharaoh as well. We don't know. But regardless of how Pharaoh became informed, the fact remains that he did discover the truth regarding the relationship between Abraham and Sarai. And he acknowledged, this is interesting, the pagan polytheistic pharaoh recognized that the source of his problems had to do with the anger of Abraham's God. You see, unlike the vast majority of our people in this world in which we live who scoff any kind of a correlation between some of the plagues on mankind, such as AIDS, with immoral behavior. You know, they don't see that perhaps this is a plague on man because of his sin. They scoff at such an idea. Pharaoh believed this very principle. He did believe that the plagues in his household were the result of some wrong 
somebody had displeased one of the gods. So when he found out that it was due to Abraham, he rebuked him for what he had done, and rightfully so. This kind of reminds me of the story of Jonah. You know, even those pagan men on the ship realized that that raging storm they were going through was something supernatural and that somebody had displeased one of the gods. And when they found out who it was, what'd they do with him? They didn't really want to. I mean, they were, you know, sometimes it's amazing. The pagans can actually be wiser than Christians. But he he said, no, it's me. Jonah at least was honest. Abraham had to be discovered. He didn't go and tell Pharaoh the truth, but at least Jonah was honest. He says, yeah, it's me. I'm the one. Throw me overboard. So anyway, Abraham had been told by God that he was to be a blessing to all the nations, right? Yet, in his very first contact with a national leader, he was anything but a blessing. I mean, here was a big opportunity for him. He could have been a real, he could have been a real witness to this important national leader and maybe even have won him to a saving knowledge of the true God. And yet he blew it. Instead of being a blessing, he brought a curse to Pharaoh and to all the you know, innocent Egyptians in his house, his, Pharaoh's household. Instead of bringing blessings to others, he brought divine judgment. This was actually God keeping his promise here. What had God said? I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Well, even though Pharaoh didn't intentionally try to do anything to harm Abraham... And even though Abraham was at fault, God is keeping his promise. And so he's bringing a curse on the one who has done harm to Abraham. Well, instead of being a great testimony to the Egyptian ruler and winning him to the Lord through his holy and pure life, Abraham totally lost his testimony before this very important national leader. Why would Pharaoh ever want to listen to a man who had jeopardized his very own wife by lying and who had even accepted many gifts from him without saying a word about the truth. Even though Pharaoh might have been, and I'm sure he was, impressed with Abraham's God, you know, and and his power in sending these plagues, yet he was not at all impressed with the the man that God had picked to be his spokesman and his servant. You know, so that didn't, that didn't do it. As far as Pharaoh was concerned, Abraham's God was a pretty powerful God. He didn't see him as the one and only true God, you know, but he sure didn't think God was too wise about the people he selected to serve him. So he blew his testimony. Actually, in this situation, the pagan Pharaoh had more integrity than Abraham. And he was used, the Pharaoh was actually used of God to rightfully rebuke Abraham, who was the very servant of the living God. That's a humbling experience, to be a a servant of the, the one and only true, living, wonderful God. And yet, to have a pagan have to put you in your place. Have you ever had that happen? Have somebody out in the world say, wow, I didn't know Christians were supposed to act like that. I mean, that's pretty humbling. But God will use those things to chasten us. Let's look at Abraham's lesson, verses 18 to 20. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why sayest saidest thou, She is my sister? So I might have taken her to be to me to my wife, to me to wife. Now, therefore, behold thy wife, take her, and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. Fortunately for all of us, God does not allow his children to go their way continuously. He will eventually intervene to bring them back to himself. I'm thankful for that. However, he often does this by exposing their sin and by permitting them to suffer rebuke and humiliation. In these verses, God both rebuked and humiliated Abraham by using a pagan to set him straight. Upon discovering what the cause for those great plagues was, Abraham, I mean, Pharaoh asked Abraham 
three questions, and that those three questions were followed by one command. The first, the first three questions, or the three questions in essence were, what is this you have done to me? Why didn't you tell me the truth about Sarah being your wife? And why instead did you tell me that she was her, your sister? You know, I was going to take her to be mine. Why did you do this? And then without one single response from Abraham, I mean, after all, what could the man say at this point? Abraham just stood there in terrible embarrassment. After uh, not ha- Just after the three questions, then Pharaoh commanded Abraham to take his wife and go thy way. And then, in verse 20, he commanded those who served him to send Abraham and Sarah away, along with, what does it say, all that he had. He allowed him to take all those gifts. It's amazing. Pharaoh was a pretty good man, wasn't he? I certainly wouldn't have done that. I would have taken all those things back, but he allowed him to take everything that he had given them. Given, yeah, them. So Abraham was driven out of Egypt. In fact, it's interesting to learn that the Hebrew word shalach, which is used in verse 24, sent him away, is the same Hebrew word which was used back in Genesis 3.23 to speak of Adam being driven out of Eden. So here we have uh, Abraham and Sarah being driven out of Egypt. When the saints of God get out of his will, even the heathen of the world will act better at times. Sad to say there are many, many in our communities who, although making no profession of faith in Jesus Christ, actually live more honest more generous and more moral lives than some of those who do claim Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that is really, really tragic. I was listening on my way down to see my daughter at Bob Jones University. I was listening to Lowell Davies on BBN radio, and he was, oh, he said something that really bothered me. He said that now the divorce rate for Christians has exceeded the divorce rate for non-Christians. Wow. What are we doing wrong? Mm-mm-mm. That is so sad. That is tragic. It does nothing at all to advance the kingdom of God. The deliverance of Abraham was extremely humbling, but it was his own sin, wasn't it, which had created his situation. So he had no one to blame but himself. He deserved this rebuke. When a child of God does not allow God's rule in his or her life, then God has to overrule. And this always brings chastisement with it. We do pay for our disobedience. Be sure your sins will find you out. Actually, God would have been totally justified if he had simply left Abraham to die in Egypt and if he had kept Sarah from him forever. He would have been justified in doing that. It was, as always, only because of God's grace that Abraham was delivered from his own self-inflicted snares. He had left the place where God had wanted him to be. He had used deception to attempt to solve his own problems, and he had allowed Pharaoh's men to take Sarah from him and compensate him with all kinds of animals and servants. It was his lack of faith, and his fear, and his dishonesty, and his own selfishness, which had made him a menace to society. And it was only by God's grace that Abraham was delivered from that terrible predicament that he had created. So at this point in his life, Abraham could have well quoted Psalm 103, verse 10, if it had been around at that time. He hath not dealt with me after my sins, nor rewarded me according to my iniquities. And aren't you and I glad for that, too? Aren't you glad we don't get what we deserve? I sure am. Well, the good thing about this entire situation is that Abraham did go back. I mean, he was driven out, so he didn't have much choice, but he did go back to the land of Canaan. And in fact, he went back to the place where he had last experienced fellowship with God. So he did learn his lesson. 
Abraham did not lose his salvation. He did not lose his faith. He had merely sinned. And now he was getting back into the right fellowship with God. Let's look at that, verses 1 to 4. And Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. That means the south of Canaan. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai, unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. He's back in the saddle again. (laughs) He's back in fellowship. The best thing to do when we have disobeyed God's will after repenting and uh, confessing our sins before him is to return to the place where we last left him. And that last place was for Abraham, where he had last had fellowship with God, and that was between Bethel and Hai. And there we are to make, or he, he was going to make a new beginning. That is where we also should make a new beginning. Remember what it says in the book of Revelation was speaking to one of the churches. I guess it's the church of Ephesus, which had lost its first love. And it says when you have um, lost your first love, what are you to do? You to remember how that first love was at the beginning. Then you are to uh, repent that you have gotten out of fellowship with the Lord and lost your first love. And then what are you to do? Redo the first works. So you remember, you repent, and you redo. And that's what Abraham is doing here. He's gone back. He's remembered where he was in fellowship with the Lord. He goes back to his altar and he repents. He redoes what he did when he was in fellowship with the Lord. And notice how interesting it is that it says in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, and Abraham Abraham went up. See, now he's going back up spiritually. It's not only speaking geographically of going from Egypt up to Canaan, but it's also speaking of the fact that he went up spiritually. He departed from Egypt, which represented the world, and he went back to Canaan, which speaks of being back in God's will. Abraham returned to the exact place where he had pitched his tent in verse 8 of chapter 12. And now, you see, now he had a very vivid illustration of the difference between being in the house of God, remember that's the meaning of Bethel, and being in a heap of ruins, which is the meaning of the word Hai. You see, left to his own follies and schemes, he had almost made a heap of ruins, not only of his life and Sarah's life, but of all the lives of those connected with him and all the lives of those who would have been born through him and Sarah. Right? Well, they actually they wouldn't even have been born. And he would have even made a heap of ruins of God's plan to send the Savior through him. Yet, thankfully, Abraham was not left to his own devices and his own schemes. God had intervened, just as he will do with all of his wayward children. It was God's grace which brought Abraham back to the place where he needed to be, which was not only in the land of Canaan, but was back in fellowship with himself. And it was also God's grace which would ultimately bring, will ultimately bring every child of God to Bethel, to his very own house, the house of God. The evidence that Abraham went up spiritually as well as geographically is that not only did he return to the place where he had last pitched his tent, but he also returned to the place of the altar. He went back on the right path as a pilgrim and stranger. He was back in fellowship with the Lord. He had been out of communication with God ever since he had left Canaan to enter into Egypt. And now he was back in touch with God who had taught him some very, very serious lessons. Now in verse 2, we read something which to the worldly-minded might seem to indicate that Abraham's detour down to Egypt had actually been 
a pretty good deal. I mean, it, you know, the, the worldly-minded, the carnal man might say, well, you know, this really benefited him. That wasn't such an unwise move after all. I mean, after all, he does have Sarah. She hasn't been defiled. And look at all these riches he has. I mean, he's got all kinds of cattle and uh, servants, men servants, maid servants, camels, cattle, silver and gold. He's a very rich man. So it's a pretty good thing here. But all that glitters is not gold. That's the little saying. All that glitters is not gold. As we will continue with our study of the life of Abraham, we're going to discover that everything he gained in Egypt became a problem for him. It may sometimes appear that we have gotten away with our disobedience, at least for a little while. It may look that way. But even that which appears as increase on the surface will sooner or later prove to be a curse. Everything that Abraham gained in Egypt eventually caused him problems. His great increase in sheep and in oxen and camels would cause a problem Oops. with, uh, well, I'll put that up there for a minute, with Lot, his nephew. Actually, in our next lesson, we're going to see that their respective herdsmen began to quarrel with one another, and therefore it became necessary for Abraham and Lot to separate. Furthermore, Lot had now seen the great wealth in Egypt, and the plains of Canaan didn't quite look so enticing to him in comparison. So eventually he would lead his family to live in the city of Sodom. And uh, that would present a eventual destruction for his family. Then another problem would later arise with something which had been gained in Egypt. One of the Egyptian maidservants, who was given to Abraham and Sarah by Pharaoh, was named Hagar. And she, although not of her own doing, she did bring division and sorrow into the family of Abraham. Actually, the problem which arose because of Hagar bearing a son to Abraham named Ishmael, that problem not only still plagues the Middle East today, but it is a serious problem to the the security of the entire world, is it not? That's a result of one of the gains, supposed gains, that Abraham got in going down to Egypt. Ishmael would never have been born, you know that, if if he hadn't gone to... um, Egypt. So increases in possessions is not always good. Increases in possessions actually means increases in problems. Isn't that a good way to look at it when you go to the mall? (laughs) Increases in possessions brings increases in problems. Well, that's true. You know, you buy some trinket and then you have to worry about dusting it and, and somebody breaking it and, you know, it's just problems. Disobedience, even when it is forgiven, still does not pay. Disobedience brings no dividends, except hopefully in the lessons that were learned through that disobedience and the chastisement and the humility that followed. Now, some of the main lessons in closing that we should learn from Abraham's backsliding journey in Egypt are, first of all, it never pays to doubt God. Two, it never pays to turn from trusting him to trusting ourselves. Three, it never pays to step out from his will and scheme to make things turn out for our own benefit. One sin will always lead to another sin. Four, it is always unwise to focus only on circumstances and not also on God, the one who is above the circumstances. Five, self-preservation should never become a cause for disobedience. What would have happened to the church if that had been true? And all the martyrs who have died, you know, so that the church would continue. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What if they had said, no, self-preservation is number one. I will not die for what I believe in. I will bow to Caesar 
what would have happened? Self-preservation should never, ever be a cause for disobedience. Six, we should not fear famines nor pharaohs, but we should trust the faithfulness of God. Seven, we should always beware of going down to Egypt because friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. Eight, time spent in Egypt is wasted time because we do not grow spiritually. We backslide in our walk with the Lord. Most of all, we should remember that it is often God who sends trials our way and he does this for what for our own spiritual growth to stretch our faith and also to glorify himself through the way we handle it if abraham had remained in canaan in spite of the famine think about this he would have grown spiritually because he would have seen i don't know how the lord would have done this you know, maybe he would have sent manna from heaven. Maybe he would have brought ravens, you know, to feed them. I don't know how he would have done it, but he would have amazingly provided for their needs. Actually, if he saw that Abraham was going to stay and trust him, he probably would have sent rain and provided the food that they needed. However, because Abraham did not trust God and instead went down to Egypt, went to the world for his answers, he went away from God. He sinned. He brought troubles to his wife and himself, and even innocent people. He lost his testimony, and he brought great humiliation to himself. Furthermore, that which Abraham carried away from Egypt would present even further problems in his life and in the lives of his descendants. If he had only viewed the famine as another opportunity to trust in God, then Abraham could have saved himself, his wife, and a lot of other people a lot of grief. So unauthorized detours to Egypt will bring troubles which will plague us for the rest of our lives, even after we have returned to Canaan. Even though it is true that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that does not mean that we will not live with the consequences of our sin, right, for the rest of our lives. So the best thing to do is to never, ever abandon our altar, our place of fellowship with God in the first place. That's the best thing to do. But if we do, we should go back as soon as possible to the place where we last left God and make matters right. Because thankfully, we do have a God who is a God of the second chance, a God who allows new beginnings. And aren't you thankful for that? Amen. Well, let me just finish with making a little comparison, which is kind of neat here. Matthew Henry points out that uh, the occasion of Abraham's deliverance from Egypt foreshadows, it's a picture of, you know, in type, a picture of the future deliverance of Israel from Egypt. This is seen in four ways. First of all, think about this. Both Abraham and Israel went to Egypt. Why? Because of a famine in the land of Canaan. You see, he went there. Abraham went to Egypt because of a famine. And later on, Jacob went to Egypt because of a famine. Now, Jacob was told to go there, so that was okay. But still, there's that similarity there between Abraham and and Israel. Secondly, both Abraham and Israel escaped Egypt due to God's intervention with what? Great plagues. Third, both Abraham and Israel were told to get out by who? Pharaoh. They were both driven out by Pharaoh. And fourth, both Abraham and Israel left Egypt with much increased goods. And there are probably other comparisons as well. But I just thought that was neat. Matthew Henry pointed that out to, for us, for our benefit.